Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Recording from my living room in beautiful Marietta, Georgia, you are listening to the Think Inclusive Podcast, Episode 10, brought to you by Brooks Publishing Company. I'm your host, Tim Viegas. Today, I will be speaking with Cheryl Jorgensen, one of the premier experts on inclusive education with over 30 years in the field. I had the pleasure of visiting with her one evening in January of this year. Cheryl and I discuss why it has taken so long for inclusive education to catch on in the United States, and what needs to happen to break the barrier for it to become part of best practices for education. She even gives me advice on whether I need to quit my job or not. You will not want to miss her surprising answer. So without further ado, let's get to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for listening. I would like to welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast, Dr. Cheryl M. Jorgensen. She was a faculty researcher at the University of New Hampshire's Institute on Disability, focusing on inclusive education for students with autism, intellectual and other developmental disabilities from 1985 until the spring of 2011. She is now in semi-retirement and able to focus on the work about which she is most passionate, student-specific consultation, team professional development, school-wide systems chains, policy advocacy, and writing. She particularly likes working with students with Down syndrome and their educational teams. Uh, she is author of many, many books and articles, almost too many to count looking at your CV. Um, I am very honored and pleased to have Dr. Jorgensen here with us. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, well, let's go ahead and, and get right in. Um, you've been doing this, your work, for many years, um, and it looks like almost uh, 30 years, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's been you know, a lot of progress made um, in schools, in the public schools, um, as far as inclusive education, um, but... Uh, as you've noted before in other interviews and other writings, um, it's kind of piecemeal all over the country. There isn't really a um, a systematic change going about in the United States. Um, do you think that we should be further along, you know, after 30 years out in providing inclusive schools for all children, or is this kind of what we have always expected? It, it, absolutely yes. <laughs> I think we should be further along, but I I can understand why we're not. And I, I I've been thinking about this question, Tim, to um, try to really hone in on why I think 
the progress has been as slow as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can share some of those ideas with you. And I think um, when you hear those ideas, they'll also sort of provide an answer to what could we do to make the progress go more quickly okay. Okay, and more effectively. So I think the primary reason why we're not further along with inclusive education um, since you know, it sort of started in the U.S. in the early 1980s is because we still have two separate systems of education, a system that we call general education, that's for general ed students, and then this whole enterprise and system um, of special education. And along with those two systems um, have evolved what people think should be different curricula, different teacher skills and certification standards, different assessments, different instructional methods. Um, and, And so all of those differences within these two systems keep perpetuating the notion that students with disabilities, and particularly I'm, I'm speaking of students with um, more intensive support needs, need something different, and they can't benefit from that general education curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and part of the system of special education that's evolved over the past almost 40 years now, is what I'm sure you're familiar with and many of your listeners, is the principle of the least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people think least restrictive environment means inclusion, when really it doesn't. And it's sort of the quote from the federal special education law is that students with disabilities should be in the least restrictive environment in which they can meet the goals of their IEPs. But the decision of what the least restrictive environment is for each child is left up to that child's individual education plan team. And there are still vast differences, um, certainly from state to state, but even within a state, from school to school, from district to district, and sometimes even within the same school district, there are radical differences in how teams make those placement decisions, even from school to school. And the least restrictive environment principle, although it was based on the idea that, and certainly we can support the idea that children need a very individualized approach to their education, LRE, which is just the abbreviation for least restrictive environment, continues to justify segregated education for some students. Mm -hmm. So I think this sort of two separate systems of education, um, the, um, you know, the components of those systems, which still sort of say different for kids with disabilities, and particularly that least restrictive environment principle, mean that, for example, in the state of Hawaii, and I'm not picking on Hawaii, I'm just kind of reflecting the data, mm-hmm. about 3.9% of students with intellectual disabilities spend 80% or more of their day in a regular class, compared to Iowa, where 60% of students with intellectual disabilities spend 80% more of their day in a regular class. And so it just prompts us to ask the question, are those kids in Hawaii all that different from the kids <laughs> in Iowa? And in fact, they're, they're not. They're not different enough to justify that, that huge discrepancy. And, and there are many other states that, that kind of follow that pattern. You know, tons of states that are in the single percentages, many states that are in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But it calls into question whether the least restrictive environment principle is really um, sort of a real thing that, um, mm. that can be done in a scientific way consistently from student to student and district to district. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting point because I, I've, I've sp- spoken with other people about that, about this idea of, uh, of LRE and mm-hmm. whether we need something different 
in the federal law uh, to really realize, you know, full and authentic inclusion. Um, so for what I'm hearing you saying is that LRE actually is holding us back as, as a country because there isn't a real strict standard on how we develop that, you know, that concept of, of how, um, um, of, of the least restrictive environment, because, you know, even in my own district, uh, there's, there's a wide interpretation of what that, what that is. Um, so I can see if we had something more specific, you know, that, that would, uh, that would help. Um, yeah, you, you and, don't, and, go ahead. And the other thing is, um, there's no either incentive or there's no incentive for states to improve their placement of kids in in more more percentage of the time in the general ed class. Nor is there a disincentive mm-hmm. from the federal government sort of accountability purposes. I mean, the federal government will it, every state is allowed to kind of identify their own statistical goal. So the state of Hawaii could say, our goal is that next year, 4% of our students with intellectual disabilities are in regular class 80% of the time. The year after, it's 4.1%. The year after, it's 42 And as long as they meet that, the federal government doesn't ever say, no, you're really behind the curve. You know, you really need to catch up to Iowa. There's just no national kind of policy legal policy um, that translates into, you know, everyday educational policy that will move, you know, those states along. And if you sort of go on historical data, it could take us 100 years for, <laughs> for most students. If, we're go- if we keep going at the same rate, you know, for most students to be spending most of their time in general ed. And yet, I understand parents who feel like that, that that their influence over their child's placement may be one of the only sort of sources of influence that they have, you know? And, and it, parents feel like if their child's getting a substandard education, one of the only things they can do is say, I want my child out of district. So mm-hmm. I, it's a dilemma. I wish I had, <laughs> you know, a, a, a great alternative for LRE, but I just know it's really... Um, really standing away, really a barrier. Now, I wonder, do you think that um, school districts are actually added, you know, um, are, are actually uh, not benefiting from this concept of LRE because because of what you, you're talking about, about, about parents? Because mm. um, when you go to the meeting, Mm-hmm. Um, what the, what the school district is concerned about, in my opinion, is not getting sued, you mm-hmm. know, not going to due process. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and mm-hmm. this happens in districts all over the country. I hear it all the time, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. anecdotally, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, it's the parents that really advocate for their child to be included in general ed or, you know, XYZ related service, mm-hmm. um, those parents are, you know, the squeaky wheels are the mm-hmm. ones who are getting, mm-hmm. you know, what they feel like they need for their children. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the, the parents who either don't know how to advocate for their child or mm-hmm. just maybe are indifferent or, you know, whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, they don't. And mm-hmm. so you have, um, a there seems to be a lot of hypocrisy or double standards. You know, there, there are double standards within every district because why is, you know, so-and-so getting mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. service or mm-hmm. being included with, you know, mm-hmm. this service mm-hmm. and, you know, the other person is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I believe, creates uh, tons of mistrust. Oh, it does. And no wonder why parents, you know, are so defensive when they come to, mm-hmm. when they come to meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you've, you've, there's, there's a lot that we can unpack from mm. what you just said. Um, I, you know, I, I go into meetings where I'm consulting with schools, whether it's the school who's asked me or the parents have asked me. 
I go in trying to presume, presume everyone's positive intentions mm-hmm. because I, just in my role, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not the person that's, you know, there to hold their feet to the fire of crossing every T and dotting every I around regulations. I'm advocating for the child and for best practices. But I, I absolutely agree that there's such a, oh, an inequity in what kid, the quality of education that, that kids are getting, even within one school building. And, and if, when it comes down to it, it's often the parents' either knowledge or their advocacy or their own sort of resources that they bring to, to advocating for their child that can make the difference. Um, I was in a meeting the other day. Um, family wants their third grader who has autism to be in general education. I had done a consultation and, you know, and given them 30 pages worth of suggestions for how to do it. And I went to the meeting with the mom, and there were 14 professionals around the table and the mom (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you know and she was highly educated she does advocacy work herself and yet couldn't uh, or didn't know how to sort of argue against those 14 professionals that were in the room right very tough yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um i wanted to talk a little bit about um i guess incentives to Mm -hmm. change because it seems to me that the only thing that school districts are concerned about are, um, uh, well, most anyways, budgets. And, and not only budgets, but money that, you know, is coming from race to the top, which is tied to the to common core implementation and test scores. I mean... That seems to be the major conversation. Like, if you open up Education Week, right? We're not talking yeah. about inclusion. We're talking about we're talking about test scores, common core standards, yeah, yes. and, and the assessments that go with those, right? Yeah, so, and again, I think I mean here I can point to really just a lack of knowledge about what it is that helps students with disabilities achieve. There's a history of belief that. And in some early research that said the only way children with disabilities, any child with disabilities, can achieve to high standards is if they're taught in a separate setting with a separate curriculum with, you know, specially trained teachers, where in the last 20 years, we really do have some evidence that um, students with disabilities, even students with the most complex disabilities, can learn and achieve to higher levels within general education. But that piece of knowledge is, just doesn't seem to have enough power to cause people to change. It's more complex. It's that, you know, each one of those 14 professionals around the table, um, as I sort of, you know, learned a little bit about them, they came through their educational career and their teacher training programs at a time when people weren't even thinking about inclusion. They themselves don't know people with disabilities as, you know, as colleagues, as friends, um, unless they happen to have a particular family experience. And then it's interesting how those people's attitudes are different. Um, So it's more than just giving people knowledge, because that's what I spend a lot of my time doing, and nobody sort of changes just for that reason. Right. Um, You know, it, it takes a shift in attitude. It takes a principal of the school, PAL of the school, who is you know, a, a vibrant, persuasive, and firm instructional leader that says, this is the way that we're going to go, takes lots of professional development and relearning for people. And it takes the knowledge of, um, at the local school level, how we can take the general ed resources, the people, the money, the, you know, equipment, and the special ed resources, and just put them all in the general ed classroom to benefit all students. Um, so it's it's more it's more than just the budget question, and it's more than just the concern about standards and assessment question. It's just a a lot of historical beliefs and and practices that are very stubborn and and difficult to unseat. Um, that that brings up a question that I I had not previewed with you. Because. What often gets tied together when we talk about ad- advocacy for people with disabilities is um, 
kind of the parallels between the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and the disability rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of what, you know, uh, the people that I know that are in the disability rights movement, you know, um, use that use that kind of language a lot mm -hmm. um you know in, i mean we use segregation right mm -hmm. i mean that that, yeah. that right. is a, a civil rights term um but th there are you know do you see do you see them as the same thing or do you see them differently the reason why i'm asking is um i've always seen it i guess in principle as the same thing because you have you know, people with disabilities and uh, people, you know, uh, of different races being mm -hmm. discriminated against mm -hmm. simply because they have, you know, those characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a, a uh, you know, uh, a Mexican, you know, mm -hmm. which, which I am, uh, mm -hmm. Mexican-American, um, uh, you know, or a person with brown skin mm -hmm. uh, being discriminated against um, and a person with an intellectual disability being discriminated against, um, or at least not being, you know, um, uh, allowed, uh, you know, quote unquote, to be in a general education room, mm -hmm. um, uh, they are inherently different because that person with, you know, brown skin, um, let's say if they're, if they're a typically developing person is mm -hmm. no different mm -hmm. than anybody else in that classroom. But a person with an intellectual disability is inherently different, mm -hmm. not less, of course, mm -hmm. but different. And so what, what do you think about that in, in that conversation mm -hmm. are, are, you know, um, and, and kind of comparing the idea mm -hmm. of disability rights and civil rights? Does that make sense? Yes. I think they're the same. I think the differences that you pointed out that it's sort of a different situation, discrimination against a person with brown skin is a slightly different situation than, a, than discrimination against a person with an intellectual disability, mm -hmm. is a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. Because I hate to say this, Tim, but if we surveyed everybody in the United States and said, among the racial groups, how would you rank them in terms of intelligence? <laughs> yeah. I don't do. I don't need to. I don't need to finish the sentence. No, you do don't. I? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> now, people, it's it's in the last. You know, it's become more unpopular to to admit that, right? And to say that, but you will still hear people who work in urban school districts say, just about kids of color, they just can't learn as much as those white kids. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some of the same prejudices about competence and ability mm -hmm. going on. Um, there are truly similarities in terms of prejudice against groups that historically haven't had much power. Mm, correct. And, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. white people have controlled people of color, and um, <laughs> intellectually non-labeled people have controlled the lives of people with disabilities, including children with disabilities, and have, you know, have purported to say... My professional opinion is that this is what your life should look like, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and so I see them as very similar. And as, as you know, I mean, we're still struggling with race in this country, and we're still not there after 150 years. Right. Um, and only 60 years with Brown versus the Board of Education. Correct. So mm -hmm. when I say I wish we were further than we are with inclusive education, I, I, I sort of say the same really entrenched societal institutions that are perpetuating racism are, are um, the societal institutions that perpetuate discrimination against children and adults with disabilities are just as ingrained. Yes, I can see that. I can see that. Because it is really, well, it's a false assumption. It is. You know, that, you know, given who, whatever characteristic that... Yep that this person is more intelligent than the other. I mean, um, I remember going in my teacher training, um, learning about, uh, and I may be completely citing this wrong, so correct okay. me if I'm wrong, uh, but the the idea that on IQ scores, mm -hmm. on IQ tests, mm -hmm. that, that um, you know, bl black people, mm -hmm. you know, scored, you know, um, lower right. than white people. Right. And so that was used 
you know, for so many years as like, well, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're not as intelligent mm-hmm. as white people, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I've got scientific data here, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, until we started to realize that, okay, those tests are, you know, biased because mm-hmm. they were made by, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, if you, have you ever read the book, The Mismeasure of Man? Uh, I can't say that I have. Who is it? All by? right. So that's your assignment. <laughs> Um, it's called The Mismeasure, M-I-S-M-E-A-S-U-R-E, of Man, and it's written by um, a recent or a deceased Harvard professor named Stephen J. Gould, G-O-U-L-D. And he actually goes back to the early development of IQ testing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and shows how those tests, which are supposed to be, you know, scientifically based, not Mm. culturally biased, were from the very get-go based on some pre-existing or a priori assumptions about how different intellectual or different um, racial groups would perform, and that the people who did some of those, like, tests on 100, you know, African-American soldiers compared to 100 white soldiers to see what their IQs look like, they fudged the data to support their already, the conclusion that they'd already drawn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So IQ testing, I just think, is worthless and really worthless. Well, and and you know, to let's let's talk about IQ just for a little bit longer. (laughs) I mean, that is that is a big determiner of our eligibility categories. Yes, it is. You know, I mean. I mean, back when I was in California, when I was writing my IEPs by hand, you know. Yeah. Back, back in the uh, heart and buggy days. Um, yeah, horse and buggy days. You know, we still had, uh, we still had, you know, the MR category. Sure. Yep. You know, I, I remember sitting in a meeting with a parent who was irate because we still had that category and i said mm-hmm. i completely agree with you but there's mm-hmm. nothing i can do about that you I need know. to write a superintendent you need to you know yeah, yeah. like <laughs> write your congressperson right. yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly um yeah. so fortunately i don't have to do that here because we do we do uh have intellectual disability categories mm-hmm. but even still mm-hmm. you know the the whole yeah. idea of iq and yeah. and um you know i, I mean, mean i do when i do workshops i do an activity and I take a piece of, mm, like, painter's tape or masking tape, and I lay it down on the floor, and I draw a line uh, right down the middle of the room that I'm presenting in. And I have people line up so that half of the people are sort of lined up on one side of the line and half people on the other. And I say, okay, the very first person on the left-hand side of this line, you are not mentally retarded because your score was 71. The very first person on the other side of the line, your ice cue is 69. You are mentally retarded. Let's think about the logic of that for a minute. <laughs> you know, even if you believed that intelligence and the, you know, the, a gradation of intelligence could really be reliably measured, which I don't, isn't that silly that we almost um, determine a child's whole educational career based on those two points of difference, you know, mm-hmm. just just doesn't make educational sense to me, and it just doesn't seem right. <laughs> so let's you know, let's say you are you, let's say you are a benevolent dictator of yeah, a school yeah, district, yeah. and um, and you know, let's get rid of IQ, yeah, know, as as an eligibility uh, mm-hmm. d- determiner, or how how would you um, assign? services mm-hmm. to a student with any particular need we're talking okay. any learning disability or mm-hmm. you know or more intensive needs um okay there's it's a big answer to that question okay and i'm going to tell you not just my ideas for this but um what is actually happening in many parts of the country right now perfect have you heard of the um large national grant called the swift project absolutely they all right i'm a big fan (laughs) great let me just briefly outline it for your listeners um the u.s department of education office of special education programs 
um, issued a $25 million grant to the University of Kansas and a bunch of other universities to see what it would look like if a school could um, take all of the resources, all of the monetary resources they get, both the resources that are kind of tagged as general education because it comes from the regular school district budget, as well as all their special ed money and resources, and put it into one big pot, and then just do really great learning assessments for all the children, not just the kids who are suspected of having disabilities, but just do great, you know, uh, math and language arts and communication assessments and ability to use technology and, com you know, all those kinds of assessments to tell you who this kid is a learner, what their strengths are, and what their needs are. And then be able to draw from that pot of money and that pot of personnel special ed teachers, speech pathologists, Title I teachers, ELL teachers, and put all those people, just disperse them throughout the building in regular ed classes and provide supports to kids, just whoever needs what. Not by the label of the teacher, but like, if I want to, if you understand what I mean, not by the teacher's label. So right. it's not like only special ed teachers can work with kids with disabilities. But if... Mary Jane needs extra support in math. Who is your greatest math teacher who's part of that fifth grade team? Okay, she's going to work with the kids who are struggling in math for some small amount of time during the day. So that process of breaking down the silos, S-I-L-O-S, that have arisen in these different systems of education and pots of money and grants, um, and, and devoting them all to the academic, behavioral, social, and communication needs of all kids is what the SWIFT grant is testing out in a number of schools across the country. And they will come up with a, um, a, a toolkit or a guidebook for how a school that's not part of their project can begin to do this. So, unfortunately, what SWIFT cannot control is the fact that the special ed law still exists, and we still need to label kids. Right. I don't think, I don't know why we need to label kids if we really had a system of describing kids' learning characteristics really well, and then being able to provide whatever services they need. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now, it, I mean, it's the reason why we even started to create eligibility categories and, and stuff like that is because there was nothing like special education before, I, I mean, I, would, I don't even know the year. Yeah, um, 1975. Okay, so 1975. Uh, thank you. Well, I guess that would be the, the law. But the, yeah. Um, yeah, there was special ed before. And certain states began providing sort of their own version of the special ed law back in the 60s. Um, and I don't, I think, oh gosh, we're getting into real history and philosophy here, Tim. Sorry, um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Special education has its roots in medicine, actually. Right, okay. Because disability, historically, has been considered not an illness, so to speak, 
but um, uh, something's gone wrong in this person mm, right. <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's something that's diagnosed, and that's a medical term, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's something that we, just like in medicine, in order to treat you, I need to know, do you have appendicitis or do you have gallbladder ascitis? <laughs> so the special ed, early special ed folks really came from the medical world, and they brought with them that need to label and diagnose and then the idea that a certain treatment, only a certain treatment or set of treatments, go along with each label. Right. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons we've gotten to where we are today. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I often hear, I often hear, when, you know, in the kind of the jargon of, you know, teachers speak, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, the old versus new model or the medical mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. you know, versus, I, I mean, I'm not sure what you call it now, but, um, and, and the, the pushback of that medical model. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it is interesting, uh, the kind of mess that we've made for mm-hmm. ourselves, um, mm-hmm. especially now that we want to, mm-hmm. uh, well, some of us, some of us do want to change, right. you know, um, um, and I, and I guess I'm going to just jump in with one more please. kind of historical, deeply, deeply held belief, and I kind of, I mentioned it a little bit um, just a minute ago, mm-hmm. is that um, the belief is still that people who have a difference that we call disability, there's something wrong with them, mm. and that they need to be fixed. Right. And so, it, you know, so the medical model is there's a pill, there's a program, there's a place that will fix this person and make them normal. A different view of disability is that society sort of creates or socially constructs that idea that there's here's this line and on one side of it is the normal people and on the other side are the abnormal people and and I think um, I think parents are under terrible pressures from from the time their child is born if their child is labeled with a disability at that point they're under terrible societal and familiar fami- family pressures to do whatever they can to make their child normal because you need to be normal to have a good life right right yeah uh, yeah you want the best for your child you, you do know. more services more speech pathology you know more discrete trial training to eliminate that autism um right, right. and Yes. <laughs> so there, therein lies the pickle that we are in, <laughs> or in my view. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I share that view. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and um, what's you know, I, I guess I haven't always thought the way that I did. You know, mm-hmm. um, when I first got into special education, well, into the field, I guess, um, um, I was a behavior therapist, uh, for for students with autism. And Mm -hmm. I, I fell, I, you know, kind of fell into the job because I was a psychology major and you can't get a whole lot of jobs with a BA (laughs) in psychology. And while I was deciding, well, do I go, you know, to master's because I wanted to be a a counselor and a therapist, Mm -hmm. um, I decided to do this thing and Mm -hmm. I just fell in love with, you know, kids with autism. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, it just, um, it, it, I've realized, oh, I think this is what I should be doing. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I had a very different mindset when I first started working that, working with them and it was definitely, okay, well, how can I make this child more normal? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, how can I, you know, I wonder what the cure will be for Mm -hmm. autism. Um, and, uh, I remember my parents, you know, would be, you know, trying all these different diets and, Mm, you know, other kinds of therapy. And, um, it was, uh, it was very interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, and the only thing that changed, the only reason I changed was because of course my, my teacher training, um, I had really great professors, um, and who were, you know, Tash members, uh, a little plug for Tash. Um, and that started to open my eyes and then meeting autistic adults. adults. That's right. And that is really what made me go, Oh, they don't want to be, you know, they don't don't want to change. They don't want to (laughs) be cured. Like, well, how come I haven't heard of this before? And then it just kind of snowballed after that. And, and, and so the, the inclusion, you know, the idea of the philosophy of inclusion, um, and this idea of, 
of uh, that disability is natural, right? Isn't mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Judith Snow? Am I saying that right? Uh, Kathy Snow. Kathy Snow. Sorry. Yeah. The wrong Snow. That's um, okay. um, that the disability is a natural part of the human experience, mm-hmm. and that um, it really shouldn't be looked at as mm-hmm. um, something that needs to be mm-hmm. fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, in that way, like 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 having cancer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, anyways, go ahead. Yeah, just a couple of resources for your listeners if they're in. If and you know this idea, particularly if you're a parent or a teacher, this idea of autism is a natural thing, or you know, how can that be? Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. It takes. You know, it, it, it's not easy to wrap your head around. So, if people want to kind of go online and and poke around and read some. Um, you know, provocative essays about this. There's a, a couple of online sources. One is called the Autistic Self Advocacy Network. I assume you can put this in print somewhere on your blog so people can find it. Mm-hmm. Um, it the abbreviation is ASAN, and it's a group of autistic adults who are very much um, involved in really political advocacy and rights advocacy. Um, and they say, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I, there's sometimes I wish my life were easier, but it's not. But I also have so much good that I experience as a result of having autism that I wouldn't want to not have autism. Right. And then there's another online website called the Autism Acceptance Project. Mm-hmm. Um, again, sort of a, a, a mom who does blogging and has lots of resources about this idea of um, we don't need to be cured. We need to be included and supported. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes, I feel I feel like we could talk about that for a long time. Could, I want to go back to <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to um, uh, some of the questions we had about um, I guess systems change mm-hmm. and and what people can do that are in situations that I guess are less than inclusive. And okay. so I have a question for you. Yeah, I am. And I, I don't think you know this, but I am a self-contained teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, and it's surprising to most people because... <laughs> because okay, nice talking to you, Tim. Yeah, I know, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, and I have been a self-contained teacher for 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when I got into the fee, when I got into working in, uh, in schools... Uh, my te- my training was so far different than what mm. I experienced in schools, yeah. and the the you know the job I got was a you know a self contained mm-hmm. teacher for students with autism, mm-hmm. um, and now I'm in Georgia, mm. in the same in the same sort of situation, um, but uh, but now uh, I've kind of come out of the closet and <laughs> <laughs> and um, now I just want I can't shut up about it, and I yeah. know people are probably tired of me hearing you know mm. tired especially at my school mm-hmm. um but um I, you know i i often have this kind of cognitive dissonance every time mm-hmm. i i go to work mm-hmm. um yep. so and i have i've asked uh, i've asked a few different you know of my, the people i interview about this mm. um so should i quit my job as a self-contained teacher at my school and move to another school or district you know, because of my beliefs for inclusion, or mm-hmm. should I stay in my job and try and influence the system within? Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's only so much I can control. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't control who my principal is. I can't control who my mm-hmm. superintendent is or my supervisors, mm-hmm. but I can't control what goes on in my classroom. Mm-hmm. So what would your advice be? <laughs> You know, because I'm not the only one. Oh, gosh, no. Oh. Yeah, there's plenty of people who think and feel the same way, and they're in the same situation. I think I, think I would need to know more about you and, and to know sort of like at the end of the day, at the end of the year, mm-hmm. what do you feel like you need to have done in order to feel like You've made the difference you want to make. <laughs> now, some people would say, if I feel like I change five little moments in my students' lives to give them five little slices of joy during their day, 
you know, mm-hmm. then I will feel as if I have made enough of a difference in their life that I've held true to my own beliefs and that I think I've, that that change has made enough of a difference in their life. Mm-hmm. Another question I would ask you or any other teacher who's sort of pondering this dilemma is, um, what are the chances, and have you tried to really develop a core group of allies in your school community so that you are not alone? Because you'll never do it alone. Right. I mean, and probably even convincing one, even if the other, one other person you convince is the principal, that person has to convince a whole bunch of other people. Right. So I don't know what kind of effort and resources you've sort of brought to bear to try to systematically get a group of allies and that could and how long can you work on that <laughs> yeah, yeah. and not throw the towel in right well you know before before you hang up on me okay. uh, i will i will say that um um i have been systematically uh, well in every job i've been i've been systematically including my students in general ed you know as much as physically possible yep. um and uh, just a few years ago um I actually worked with a, a consultant and, and a mentor of mine oh. to include a, a student with significant disabilities in okay. general ed for, uh, and we it was it was a it was a gradual process. But mm-hmm. he currently is in in uh, fourth grade, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much for all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work with his or his paraprofessional and mm-hmm. general ed teacher to modify those activities and Brilliant. and so those you know I mean. That is wonderful, um, yeah. and I'm very happy that that I I've been able to do that. Very blessed to be able to do yeah. that. Um, but that in and of itself, um, you know, is one story. Right. You know, and I would love to do more. Yeah. Um, but I feel you know, and you know, and I am a strong inclusion advocate, and everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but and I. But I, I do feel like my hands are tied sometimes because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so anyways, I, I guess I don't really have a, a, you know, the I don't really have an answer for the people who are in my position uh, except just to keep going, keep believing, keep talking. You know, that's part of the reasons why I started this, this website was because... Yeah. Because I couldn't find mm-hmm. anything out there that would support mm. me, you know, wow. yeah. um, I couldn't, I could not find any resources or any any teacher that was trying to do the same thing I was, Holy and cow. and have some sort of, you know, encouragement or you mm-hmm. know saying, hey, I'm not the only one, you know, mm-hmm. and so I, that's what I'm, that's what I hope mm-hmm. that. Think Inclusive does that the that mm-hmm. these podcasts do mm-hmm. is that uh, the people and the teachers and the parents who listen mm-hmm. can say, okay, I'm not the only one. I can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I can create a professional learning network on Twitter, mm-hmm. on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I can have that support. Mm-hmm. And even if I don't, you know, get where I want to, mm-hmm. um, I have a roadmap. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it, it, oh, I just want to sort of scream when I hear that when you were teaching, you couldn't find those resources because they've been around since 1985. But those of us putting them out there haven't done a great job of it, I guess. You know, like, <laughs> if, if you being sort of the assertive and smart and creative person you were couldn't find those resources, what a terrible job those of us <laughs> in the inclusive field have done. I'm serious, and that's a problem. We, we have not learned how to take you know, these little islands of ex- inclusive excellence and, and spread them. And that's, what, that's another thing the SWIFT project is trying to do. It's not that we've not known how to do it. It's that we've not known how to spread it on a large scale and sustain it. Right. <laughs> so SWIFT is as much interested in those questions as it is on what kind of assistive technology will help this kid read better, you know. Right. Um, golly. Uh, yeah. So I, of course, want to consult with you now and try to give give you ideas that you haven't thought of for moving your school along. But well, I don't know. <laughs> well, that, that's probably for an, uh, a, yeah, another conversation. Another conversation, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that the biggest um, 
barrier that I uh, run across um, is, and it's not just from my coll the colleagues in my in my school building, mm -hmm. uh, because you know when you were talking about allies, I have I have created a nice you know um, a nice group of allies mm -hmm. that I talk about with, and we you know we put our heads together and mm -hmm. and, and you know do the things that we have control over. Mm -hmm. um, but when I when I have conversations, you know, in the global sphere, mm -hmm. is that they just people are wary about this because they just don't know how to do it. They don't know what it looks like, mm -hmm. and and like you know, like what you said at the Swift schools. I really think that that's going to be mm -hmm. a really nice mm -hmm. um, way to show people. I know uh, Dan Habib is it was a guest on a, a few months yeah. ago, and I know that he's doing the filming for the Swift schools. So I'm really excited about that. Um, yep. And uh, and you know to to show people that 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 because they just don't believe it no no and, and I, I i think videos really help but i think even dan would say that one of the reasons um he's had what he feels is success with his film including samuel is that um people just you just don't say okay we're showing including samuel from 7 30 8 30 thursday come if you want and that's the end of it it's the beginning of a conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it needs to be a very intentional conversation with people over multiple years with lots of professional development. <laughs> you know, attention to that infrastructure in the school that provides common planning time. And, you know, it's, it's not just one or two people. I mean, it's really um, looking at what schools need in order to make a change and sustain the change. And we really could be talking about math curriculum. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, any change in schools is really difficult. Um, and maybe inclusive education is a little harder than math curriculum because it gets at some basic human, you know, values about humanity and so forth. But, um, you know, we're still really learning how to, how to spread the process beyond little islands of excellence. Right. I, I like that, that, kind of visual that metaphor yeah. yes yeah because I, I i think that's what it is it's, it's you know um i you know I, i'm gonna put it out there i am looking for those little islands of excellence please uh -huh. come please yeah. come and tell me i will share them with the world <laughs> you yeah. know i mean that's the whole point you know yeah. uh, like i need i yeah. want to show people I, and i and i want to I want to be able to have that for myself as well, you for know, sure. that this is what it looks like, this is how, yeah. what it feels like, and, um... Georgia, and so, I don't know. I don't know anybody in Georgia. Are there cash members in Georgia? Well, I think, I think I might be the only one. Holy moly. <laughs> no, that's not true. No, you know, Connie, uh, Connie Lila Bryan oh, and sure. John O'Brien are in, in Georgia, and, um... I have connected with them, um, uh -huh. although only just very briefly. Uh, uh -huh. We keep saying we're going to do something else, but you know, uh -huh. I know they're very busy. So, uh -huh. um, you know, uh, we don't have a um, attached chapter. Um, I, I tried to start one a few years ago, and, uh -huh. and I it didn't quite get off the ground. But yeah. you, you know, uh, you know, Georgia's not the only state that doesn't oh, have no, a no, no. chapter. But and I, I think part of the reason is you have so many different disability rights organizations within mm -hmm. a state. You know, Georgia has a bunch, mm -hmm. and they're all kind of the same people, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so adding another one mm. is, there's not a whole lot of incentive, especially when it's not very powerful. I mean, we mm -hmm. have, you know, uh, the center's, um, on, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, the Center for Leadership on Disability Okay, at it's Georgia probably State. The, it's it's Georgia's Institute on Disability that yeah. I used to work for. Yes, yes, the, exactly. Uh, University Center on Developmental Disability. Yes, that you it, said. yes, Georgia State University. Yep. Yes, that is still up and running. Yep. And you know, it's still very you know uh, a powerful ag mm -hmm. advocacy group. And mm -hmm. then you also have um, uh, the Georgia Council on Developmental Disability. Yep. And then you also have um, the ARC. And you yep. have um, you know just th there's various groups. And mm -hmm. it's just like that all over, you know, all mm -hmm. over the country. Um, so, you know, if we could get everyone together, you mm -hmm. know, but that's just so hard to do when, you know, yeah. everyone has their own agendas and, you know, yes, stuff do. like that. All right. So I'll tell you the number one thing that New Hampshire did 
30 years ago, 25 years ago, to get inclusion going. Um, are you familiar with what's called partners in policymaking? Uh, d doesn't sound okay. familiar, but um, it's Actually, you can Google it, partners in policymaking. I think they're based in Minnesota. Most states have, um, it's a parent leadership series that occurs over the course of a year, and it um, teaches parents of school-age kids with disabilities about community organizing, best practices, and, like, legislative advocacy. In 1987... Um, New Hampshire's had their first partners in policy making thing for families, and that got inclusive education off the ground. I will email you the contact of the woman who runs New Hampshire's, and if you could, starting in 2014-15, run a partners in policy making for families around inclusive education, there is your start statewide of inclusive education. That has served to be the biggest pressure point in our state, mm -hmm. bar none. So I will email that to you. Well, that makes sense. You know, the, 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 that it would <laughs> come from a parent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, you don't know how many times I hear, you know, parents get what they want around here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and our p parent leadership series, um, our governor is a graduate of our parent leadership series 25 years ago. Mm. We have school wow. board chairs um, because there's a very much, it's not just sort of the people who come can't just want to make change in their own child's life. They need to really be a want to be a community organizer and make a difference in policy. Mm. So we have, you know, state representatives and legislators and school board members and school board chairs and, um, you know, business people who happen to have a child with a disability and they have found their power. That's uh, that's great. That's yeah. great. Uh, this has been a very very interesting <laughs> conversation. Uh, I'm, I, <laughs> I, I'm so glad. I'm so. This is the kind of conversation I wish, you know, I would be recording, and I am recording it. So this is awesome. Oh yay! <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, one, you know, we're kind of getting up to an hour yep. here, and I just want to make sure. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, about the Common Core. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a very hot topic, mm -hmm. um, you know, just in, in the general education uh, mm -hmm. sphere. And so I wanted I, to, to know your thoughts um, about Common Core and if special educators in particular should be worried about that. And, and believe it or not, I've gotten emails and, mm -hmm. you know, wondering what I thought about it and, mm -hmm. and whether, you know, they, they think uh, whether I thought it was going to leave our kids behind, mm -hmm. you know, because of the, the rigor or, mm -hmm. or whatever. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think it needs to, but I'm worried that it will. Okay. And I have some evidence, just anecdotal, but the evidence and the thing that makes me most worried is that people will say, it'll, it'll be used as another excuse to separate kids with disabilities from kids without disabilities. Mm. That unless you are pursuing the, you know, unless you're in that 10th grade English class to master all those regular common core standards, you can't be in this English class. Now, that's it's against the special ed law, but I'm hearing that that's happening, mm. that, that people are saying to parents, um, you know what alternate assessments are based on alternate achievement standards mm -hmm. that are still very closely linked to the common core regular ed standards. I, I'm hearing people say from different states, um, if you have a child who's working on those alternate achievement standards and taking that alternate achievement test, you can't be in regular ed. Um, so I'm really worried about that. I don't. I don't think the Common Core standards need to need need to leave kids with disabilities behind. I think if they if people had the right attitude about kids with disabilities, it would help raise everybody's achievements. But only if people think that kids with disabilities can achieve to those high levels and provide them with multiple means to get there. Right. So right. the universal design, to me, we should be saying Common Core State Standards taught through universal design for learning. I mean, they should sort of go together. Um, and, and there's just no evidence 
that um, students with disabilities who are in regular classes where, you know, people are learning the Common Core Standards, there's no evidence that they will bring down anybody else's scores, but I hear that worry all the time. Right. You? Right. I remember. Yeah. I, I remember listening to Lou Brown talk a few uh, a few years ago. I think it was the his DVD, and he mentioned that he's like, uh, he said something like, um, if uh, you know, if all the scores went down in the whole school district, you know, because <laughs> because you know, the, oh, those those people, the students with disabilities, yeah. you know, then you would have to say the same thing if the if the stu- if the scores went up That's right. <laughs> yeah. because of those kids with disabilities yeah yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah again i think people have a conclusion already in their mind and then they're just sort of coming up with rationales to support that you know that foregone conclusion right, um, right. no evidence at all and right. lots of evidence that universally designed instruction and inclusive classrooms improve everybody's achievement absolutely 100 yeah. percent agree yeah it, you know in in my view uh, with with common core i'm not as concerned um mm-hmm. um uh but i think it's more like what you said because of my own attitude mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know i can't control other people's attitudes but mm-hmm. it, i can't control mine and mm-hmm. i always thought you know specifically with uh, with alternate assessment mm-hmm. that it made more sense to teach you know, standards that were aligned to the common core in the general ed setting as opposed yeah. to a self-contained setting, mm-hmm. which I've tried to argue many times with my colleagues um, mm-hmm. uh, because what ended up happening, I think, is that, you know, like, oh, we have all these alternate achievement standards. Great. We can go into our special rooms right. and and just yeah. teach we can them. the common core there. Mm-hmm. Right. We can, yeah, we can teach yeah. the standards there. Nope. Uh, which doesn't work. It doesn't work, and um, and is very and you know it's frustrating for me because I want to give access to my kids, um, and I want to get you know give them access to the general curriculum. And I have you know w- when I have K through five, and um, and they you know they want me to teach a lesson that is K through five. Wow. And and I mean it is it is nearly impossible. It's hard. I know. It, it's so hard, and you know, and I'm. And I'm not well, you're against, a special educator. <laughs> I, I, I'm not against alternate assessment. Yeah, know? I know. Like yeah. I, um, right. But I am. I am the way that we're kind of doing it, especially mm-hmm. in Georgia. I'm showing my hand. You know, mm. D- D- Georgia Department of Ed, if you're listening. But th- this is, you know, mm. it's it's definitely very difficult. And I know that mm-hmm. other states are are feeling the same mm-hmm. the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, there's some states whose alternate assessments are very rigorous. And, and, you know, there's the two national consortia that are developing the right. new alternate assessments based on the Common Core Standards. They're very rigorous. You almost can't tell them apart from the course, you know, the general ed standards. But kids are given a variety of ways. They're taught them in a variety of ways, and they're given a variety of ways to show what they know. So, right. <laughs> right. universal design. Absolutely. Okay, well... Um... This has been a wonderful conversation, oh, Dr. Jorgensen. Thank you so much for <laughs> oh, taking taking so much time and really, you know, developing the the topics and stuff. And um, uh, I wish you all the best, and uh, love to have another conversation with you in the future. Great, I would look forward to it. Excellent. Okay. Good night. That concludes this edition of the Think Inclusive podcast. For more information about Cheryl Jorgensen, you can visit her website. Cheryl M. Jorgensen.com or search for her Ask Cheryl posts on Think Inclusive. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter at think underscore inclusive or on the web at thinkinclusive.us. Visit our sponsor at brookspublishing.com and receive 25% off your order using the promo code TIMBD25. Today's show was produced by myself talking into USB headphones, a MacBook Pro, GarageBand, and a Skype account. Bumper music by Jose Galvez with the song Press. You can find it on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Thinking Fields podcast via the iTunes Music Store or Podomatic.com, the largest community of independent podcasters on the planet. From Marietta, Georgia, please join us again on the Thinking Inclusive podcast. Thanks for your time and attention. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.